Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jay Michael speaking with the movers, shakers, and indie art makers in The Passion Pit. Story time! When I was in second grade, I had the lofty title of Board Eraser Monitor. This allowed me every Monday morning to go down to the basement of PS97 in the Bronx and use the high-tech eraser cleaning machine. Basically, it was two wide brushes that pulsated, allowing a cloud of dust to thicken the air, but clean the brushes, the erasers. Well, me and the other boys, this job was far too dangerous for a girl, would clean the erasers and discuss creature features. A show that played horror movies on Saturday night with a horror host and a cool theme song. Anyway, here's the secret. And this is a secret that I've kept for, well, now it must be over 50 years. Until a certain point, I never watched Creature Features. I was just too scared. So when all the other little boys discussed the weekend's episode, the movie, the monster, I just pretended to have seen it. Lots of, oh yeah, really scary, or a great effect with the monster, yeah, and so on. Until one day, one of the kids stopped buying my bullshit. He challenged me. He told me he'd better see that I watch that movie the next Saturday. So that weekend, to save face, I gathered up all my courage, and I had to watch one of the horror movies on Creature Features. I did. It was The Mummy's Hand with Tom Tyler. I was terrified, but I also loved it. That Monday, I mentioned the effects of his dark eyes, the jerky movements of Universal Pictures' Mummy, even the quality of the performance of George Zuko as Professor Anhoneb. The two things happened because of that. I was welcomed into the elite club of border racer monitors who liked creature features, and I began a lifelong affair with macabre cinema. Now, don't get me started on when I met Hammer Films' Peter Cushing. To open this segment, I spoke with the great-grandnephew of author Bram Stoker, whose seminal work set in motion a gothic tale that changed the face of the horror film forever. The novel for which I speak is, of course, Dracula. Now, this particular author, Stoker, has written his own prequel and sequels to Dracula, and even is working on a film, a documentary, that is. Without further ado, enter freely and of your own free will. Hello. Day Chris Stoker. That's me. This is Jay Michaels. If I'm on the line, you're on the air. We're well, I'm ready to go, Jay. <laughs> Glad to hear that. <laughs> it is it is an absolute pleasure uh, to speak to you. Uh, uh, as much as you bear the great name of Stoker, I think you can also bear the name of his character, of Vlad Dracul, a relative there, because you are a warrior. Uh, aside from being aside from being an athlete, uh, you you've done battle against the forces that have tried to claim your great uncle's uh, amazing work, and and have once again brought it back to the family name. Well, I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, it's it's kind of interesting uh, when when you grow up with a, a legacy of Bram Stoker hovering over you. You know, his his youngest brother, George, my great-grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, only, only of the seven children in his family, only three had offspring, and one of those has died out. Luckily, Bram's is still alive, 
a couple of great-grandsons in their late 70s, hmm. and then my side of the family. So there's not many of us to carry the torch, so to speak, and not many of us who are kind of crazy enough to say, okay, jump into this thing <laughs> and let's figure out how to sort of re- reclaim a little bit of the Stoker name uh, when it's combined with, you know, this incredible legacy that Bram Stoker has left us. So, so here I am chatting with you about some of these cool things that I've been doing. Uh, I, I recently spoke to a descendant of the Booth family, and and he told me the story that when he was nine years old, his mother sat him down and said, okay, you are you are the, the, the great, great grandnephew of John Wilkes Booth. And whereas she thought he would be miserable over it, he was thrilled and told the world. Uh, uh, <laughs> how was it in your life to be able to walk around and say, you know, you know the guy who wrote Dracula? Well, that's my descendant. I was a big hit around Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. Growing up in Montreal, Canada, I mean, there was a fair amount of ribbing as, as a kid around Halloween. Was like, ooh, so what's going to happen when we come to your house? Are you going to give us candy or take our blood? You know, oh, brilliant! Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So I got a, I, I got a fair amount of that, but but you know, honestly, it wasn't. I mean, that that really did happen, but I really didn't really get it until the late '70s when I was in university and my father. You know, kind of showed me this this uh, first edition that we had when I came home, saying, "You know, I've got to do a, a research paper on, on an author. What, what do you think? Should I should I do it on Bram? What do we know?" And funnily enough, he didn't know that much. He, he knew, you know, obviously that Bram wrote the book and some mm-hmm. of his other books, and that we had a first edition sitting in the house signed by Bram to his mom. But it, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of beholden to two Boston College professors, McNally and Florescu, who wrote a book in search of Dracula, because that was the first book that anyone in our family had read that shed light on Uncle Bram. Of course, it also connected Vladdy and Taylor. Right. That was a big a big move at the time to sort of say, well, this, this Stoker guy did some research, and we're not exactly sure how much, but we did find his notes in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, and he's got a reference to uh, Vlad Dracula, and the name Dracula meaning devil. Right. And, and so that those guys opened my eyes as much as they did probably to a lot of people. That book was a big seller. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of started me years later when Ian Holt contacted me and said, hey, let, let's write a sequel, and I've got this, this movie play, um, script, I should say, that needs needs to be turned into a book. It needs some life. Do you want to get involved? And, and that was like 2003. Mm-hmm. And that's when I just sort of decided, okay, maybe, maybe the time is right. I've been teaching for 25 years. I've been doing lots of other things. But let's let's just get into this. And, and Jay, let me tell you, there's been no looking back. It's taken me to museums all over the world, to Transylvania no, 10 times, oh, Ireland, Scotland. It's really cool stuff, tracing uh, little bits and pieces that good researchers have done, but nobody's really been able to put the whole thing together. This is kind of where my passion is, is maybe I could be the guy that can kind of unify all the good hard work other academics have done, people in Hollywood have done, little bits and pieces that when put together give us an interesting picture of who Bram Stoker really was and what he was looking for, what was inspiring him to write this novel. And, and, and when you get right down to it, it's the humble beginnings of a theater manager 
who, who literally wrote probably the greatest piece of that genre uh, ever. Uh, now, now, I started by saying about the controversy uh, behind Dracula. Uh, we all, any, anyone who's a fan knows a little bit about it here. What is, what is the controversy that, uh, uh, that, that's in the ethers about Dracula and its, its ownership? Well, well, I mean, first of all, there, there's, there's more than one, which is kind of cool. Oh, my, there, okay. There's, there's controversy, there's mystery, there is, you know, people think, you know, Bram was, you know, whack job, you know, what, what was it? So, one of the controversies that I, I, I think that I've been able to debunk is that Bram Stoker didn't file the copyright procedures properly in the U.S. Uh, and therefore lost the copyright when Doubleday published the book in oh. 1899. Right. Well, that's not true, because my wife and I, who kind of stuck our teeth into this thing, said, wait a sec, Bram was a lawyer. He was very detail-oriented. He was a clerk in Petty Sessions, and the inspector in Petty Sessions of all Ireland. He wouldn't have screwed up that badly. And when we found a willing helper in the Library of Congress who felt the same way, she, she found that Bran had filed everything properly. The, the, the disconnect, Jay, was that we don't have anybody still alive that's, um, you know, Bran's wife and, and, and his son are gone. And the great-grandsons, who were actually raised by grandson, uh, they don't have any memory. They don't have any checkbooks to show that the money kept coming All in right. from Doubleday. But, but they feel that it did. They don't, they don't have any animosity. They don't, it was, I don't know where this urban legend was created, but that's probably you know, one of the big um, uh, you know, controversies. The book went into public domain in, in 1962, so that issue... Of revenue is kind of long gone. Right. Um, uh, you know, people can publish the book and not have to pay the Stoker family anything. Um, the other controversy that you know is a, is a big juicy one is the fact that the German um, film company Prada Films in 1922 made a film. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was a great film. German expressionism. You know, early. Oh, at its finest. Uh, it, it really is a compelling movie. <laughs> But, you know, they chose not to contact Florence Stoker and ask for the rights. Right, right. Which I'm sure she, she would have been very happy to do business with them. She was, you know, she, she didn't, Brand didn't die and leave her destitute, but it certainly wasn't the, the fortune that she got later when the film rights were sold to Universal. And oh, yes. And ended up selling them on the hammer. She made $40,000 at the time. That's like, you know, a million and something nowadays. Easily, yes. It's very well. So it was mostly the point, though, that a film company can kind of put art above business. And and you know, you you and I are in the are, you know the arts business. We don't we don't like when we our stuff gets ripped off. You know, neither do any musicians or any other. Oh, artists. of course. And in, in those days, that actually was the first copyright infringement from book to movie. And luckily. Um, Florence was able to get the, the British Authors Society, who Bram was a member of. She wasn't, but Bram was. They represented her at their expense for two and a half years and prevailed. And then the funky thing, the weird thing that happened was Prada declared bankruptcy. There was no financial judgment, but the judgment was all copies of the film needed to be uh, destroyed. And like other things in Germany, they kind of mysteriously 
ended up in Argentina. Uh-huh. <laughs> back to the U.S. Um, and, and because at the time the U.S. hadn't signed the Berne Convention about copyright and all that stuff, so it showed in Chicago, I think in 27 or something like that. And so it lives on. Um, but it is a controversy when people say, what do you think? I say, well, good for Florence Stoker. Even though it turned out to be a great movie, I'm glad you know we get to see it. It's, it's still a copyright infringement that we artists should say, good for her for standing up for her. Oh, I, I certainly agree. It, it was so blatantly copied on so many levels, and they changed the names around. So, it, again, it was almost laughable how they thought people wouldn't realize it. Uh, it it's, it's almost well, like a French farce. You put a false mustache on them. Yeah, but at the beginning, they even say, adapted from the book by Bram Stoker. Do they really? They for, forgot to do the, the homework or just think, well, no one's going to catch us. I, I, I don't know. But the funny thing is, it is one of the most faithful adaptations of the novel, even to this day. Actually, in terms uh, of Dracula's appearance, yes. Uh, he, he, was, he was never a Hungarian count or a six-foot British man. It was, he, was, he was always uh, yeah, that look. He was, yeah, was a, hot, a hot aristocrat. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you. Wow. Uh, uh, do you think in the end, yes, it, it was a crime for sure, do you think in the end the movie's existence has helped uh, uh, the story, has, has, has made it even more powerful part of, uh, of, of, of the Dracula lexicon, if you will? Do you think it's good that it stayed? I, I, yeah, I, th- I think it's good that, that it stayed. It's good that, you know, that it, it's kind of cool when you look at any of these cool old stories that something like this managed to exist you know, to, to, to exist and to, to remain. And it is good to see. And, and I'll tell you, so many friends of mine contact me and say, oh, Jaker, I was in Dublin, Ireland, or I was, you know, this place. And there was a symphony, you know, playing the music score because one of the things, Jay, about the film is the original score did not uh, re- remain. Right. So it, what's cool is modern-day people can apply their music score to the film, so I, I've heard it gets shown in great cathedrals where there's a, a choir and a symphony, it gets shown in all different places, and, and so it's very creative, and it, it again, it, it's not going to go away, it's not no. going to die. Now, no, not at all. Lots of other movies after that, you know, some of them have been awesome classics, like the 31 Lugosi that Todd Browning did, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Lee, I mean, it, there's been some really, really good ones, and not so good ones, but they're all... And it's all inspired by something that, you know, my famous relative did, which I think is very cool. When you when you look at the massive thing, the literature and film, big screen, little screen, costumes, opera, ballet, all this stuff really started with Bram Stoker's, you know, mindset. Now, of course, he didn't write the first vampire book, but his his pulling together of this creature from a Transylvania and combining the reality of superstition and, and and introducing this into literature in a way that people felt it was real, that's what he did very well. They say that it was a, a the character, part of the, the description was a little dig to his to his employer at the time, Sir Henry Irving, who was who was quite the tyrant, uh, and, and yeah. he described him just a little bit that way. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to that. Um, you know, Bram sort of left, left a, uh, lived, excuse me, a nocturnal life working at the Lyceum Theater. Right. Irving, who was a demanding, a very demanding boss. Yep. They, they were close, but he, you know, was like many 
they are, you know, egos and, and they have to be stroked a lot and taken care of. And Bram did all that. He knew what he was getting into. He needed to be the money cruncher, but he also needed the guy that helped uh, edit the plays to make Irving look good. He needed to stroke his ego when he needed it. He needed to take care of all the details. It, you know, it's a little bit like Jonathan Harker. In that there you go. You know, with, you know, sort of doing everything to make the count, uh, close the deals for the houses and, and all the rest. Now, 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 Bram Stoker wrote uh, a lot of other pieces, actually. He wrote for some of the pulp novels. Uh, 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 there, there's something called uh, uh, Weird Tales or something like that. There were several stories that he wrote uh, that have since been committed to film in some way or another. Uh, do, do you have dealings with all of those? No, no, there's, there's no, there's, there's, those are all public domain as well. Oh, okay. Um, we, you know, what we do is we represent Bram's intellectual property on things that have been discovered not published, and one of those was his Lost Journal oh. uh, that was published in 2012. Uh, but you know, you, you're right, he wrote 12 novels, numerous short stories, they popped into weird tales, they They've showed up in other places. And what's happening uh, is sort of almost like this reemergence of Bram. And partly it's because I'm pushing this kind of rock up the hill. <laughs> you know, let people look, hey, it's not just Dracula, some other cool stuff. The Squaw, for instance, Jay, is a really cool and eerie short story, um, which is semi autobiographical of, of, of Bram and Florence on their honeymoon in Nuremberg. Um, Dracula's guest has been around for a while and keeps kicking up. Which is an interesting story that I, I know for sure was one part of Dracula. That became uh, Dracula's yeah. daughter, or at least that suggested Dracula's daughter. Yeah. I think the movie uh, well, yeah, in '32. I think. Was, um, yeah, whoever it was, I can't remember. Universal, somebody bought the rights. Yes. But they completely changed the story. They just needed the film rights. Okay, but oh. when you read Dracula's guest and watch Dracula's daughter. Not similar at all. Huh. They just needed to have film rights, but but it's a cool, it's a cool story. Um, but yeah, he was very prolific in his writing, and one of the things he wrote, um, the, the, the which was all about the Jewel of the Seven Stars, but, you know, was adapted into one of the Mummy movies with Lou Gossett uh, Jr. Oh, oh, um, I didn't even know that. The Layer of the White Worm. Oh yes, yes, that's with Hugh Grant and Catherine Luxemburg. Really so, brilliant, very eerie movie. Very eerie movie. And it was, you know what's strange? The last book that he wrote, and, and some of the scholars kind of think he was kind of beginning to lose, he'd had two strokes at the time, and it was a little disjointed, but it was still very eerie and strange. Um, very kind of Bram-esque, but it's, it's kind of weird when I read it because it's like sad. It's the last thing he wrote, and was he... You know, not at his best. Mm -hmm. He he wrote he wrote one that also was adapted into a movie, Burial of the Rats, or something like that. I believe yeah. was the title. Um, he had a very wild sense of humor and a very wild imagination. These these characters, there's such wit and there's such macabre taste behind them. I, I guess when you work in a theater for so many years, that's that's what happens. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because. You know, not many people do recognize that he had quite a sense of humor. I, I, I contributed an introduction to a, a book by a guy called Mike Shepard in Cruden Bay, Scotland, who recently discovered that Bram spent 13 summer holidays there. And in the <laughs> newspaper articles that Mike found, there was you know lots of references to Bram being a jovial, fun-loving kind of guy. 
but when he was focused on his writing, and he wrote Dracula up there as well as two of his other books, Mystery of the Sea and The Water's Mouth, mm. he was very serious, pacing up and down the beach, you know, with this sort of look on his face and a big walking stick and, you know, could get serious when the time was right, but also was a fun-loving Irishman as well. Loved it, loved it, you know, have a drink every now and then and uh, enjoy life. But he, yeah, this sense of imagination, I think there's a part of it that was formed as a young kid, seven years of a mysterious illness. That's right. He was bedridden for, for uh, his, his, his yeah. young, young life. And, and, and I've done some research, and he had two very famous uncles. One was a famous bloodletting doctor who wrote a treatise, and he was alive when Bram was sick. And I think that there is quite possibly that Bram was bloodlet and therefore somewhat traumatized by, you know, these people coming along and either leaching him or cutting him and draining him of his blood. And then when they'd done that, they used to have you drink oil and claret, which was the red wine. So right. you're dehydrated and you're drunk for a day or two when you're you know, two or three or four years old. Oh my gosh! And if it, if if when he felt better from all of this, of course he thought taking blood helps you live forever. Oh my gosh! You look at it psychologically. How fascinating! Did, yeah. did you we also found records of? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Please, after you. Well, we found we found one story we know for sure his mom uh, read to him or told him, and years later he asked her to send it to him in writing so he could use it in one of his children's books. And Jay, it, it, it goes even further than what you just said. It is all about her seeing people buried prematurely and rescued from the grave and being dragged out during the cholera epidemic. So imagine what you just mentioned about the bloodletting and then a child sickly wondering if he could be possibly misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and have to drag his way out of the grave. And rising and from I'm the grave. sure for those seven years, this, this kid developed somewhat of a macabre sense of imagination from all those experiences. Oh my gosh, of course he would. Uh, have, have you, because you mentioned the, the lost journals, did you, in, in all these pursuits, in all these the, this research, did, was there ever a point where you just sat down and said, wow, I never knew that about my uncle, or, or I can't believe he did that. What did, what, what did you learn about him that was, that was shocking, that was interesting, that, that you couldn't imagine, if you will? Well, first of all, I guess I had already seen the Dracula notes at that point, so I know he was very detail-oriented, got all the schedules right, mailings of letters and telegrams and all that right. But what struck me the most was he was a guy... You know the way a cat walks around and looks at everything very quickly and sort of their head moves quickly and they jump at anything? I have three yeah, cats. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Bram was one of those sort of hypersensitive people, even though he was a big six foot two, you know, lumbering athlete. He was still very agile. He was not only a gymnast, but a rugby player. He was a race walker and a rower. But by reading his entries into his journal, that he kept for 11 years while he was still in Ireland and then he moved to England working for Irving. He was very aware of everything, and I mean everything going around him, from drunk people throwing up in the streets to people beating their wives to funny things to weird stuff, social events to, you know, a, one of the ones that was a horrible account of, of a person, of a family that he knew. He went to college with one of them that the family burned to death because the fire brigade was coming along with the brand new extension ladder. 
and all the people told the folks up on the third floor, don't jump, don't jump, the ladders are coming. Well, the ladder comes, and they put it up, and it falls apart. Oh, people. no. And by that time, the people, it's too late for them to get out, and, and they burn, and, and Bran talks about this. It's kind of grotesque, and he says, it was such an intense heat because the bottom floor was actually a taxidermy office with all these chemicals. Oh, and of course, the houses were all, buildings were wooden. He said there was so much heat that the only thing was that was left to put into a coffin was the bones of the servant's hand. How grotesque, you know? And, and, and yet Brand felt it very important to, to commit this horrible experience. Obviously, there's a big inquiry. I followed up with the newspapers. How the heck did this happen? You know, the fire brigade very proud of their, their new ladders. Well, this was a horrible tragedy. So it was things like that, as well as, you know, funny and weird stuff. But he didn't just focus on one thing or another. It was everything. And that's what kind of made me think, this is Bram. He was a, a guy interested in arts, in sciences, in the theater, in writing, in romance, in horror. All of that was Uncle Bram. Well, that's probably what made his, his book so enduring, is the fact his, his attention to detail, he finds every moment, that, uh, when you said about the bones of the servant's hand, as, as grotesque as that is, there's, there's a level of beauty in that. There's, there's, there's a great sadness that wouldn't have been there if someone else just said, oh, it was a big fire. You know, the, he, he finds the level of beauty in this, which is, which is really fascinating. Uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was a painter. He was the, a founding member of the Dublin Painting <laughs> Sketching Club. So that further illustrates, and uh, a writer in, in America once, in one of the reviews, Bram Stoker writes with the eye of a painter. I don't know if that guy knew he was a founding member of the Dublin Painting mm -hmm. Club. But, but that exactly goes to what you said. He's detail-oriented, but also used many words to describe things, like the Transylvanian landscape, although he never went there. He had sketches of Brand Castle in a book. He had other people's accounts that he then combined to to give a great sense of what the place looked like, even though he never went there. He he went so far as to to mention the, the breath of Dracula, literally what his breath smelled like in in the novel yeah. at one point, and and that's the kind of detail that that endures with you. Uh, now, now we, we've talked about Bela Lugosi, we've talked about the mysterious uh, Max Schreck, and we've talked about Christopher Lee. Uh, the, the customary fanboy question, you have seen Dracula go, you, you've seen it so many different ways, and you've seen the vampire legend, thanks to it, go, go in so many different directions. What do you think is, is your, do you have a favorite version? If someone said, what's the best time it was depicted, what, do you have one? You know, I'm sorry to say I don't because I've become a decent, not, not a, you know, a great student, but a decent student. And I have to say, Bela Lugosi was a change. There's no question. Sure. A change in Bram Dracula depicted, as we mentioned earlier, as this sort of aristocratic Eastern European count. That was because the theater needed to have a attractive guy on stage. They were used to that. They, they couldn't have, they couldn't have had Max, Max Schreck no. depicted Dracula in, in 1931. So I respect that change and I respect the advancement in film in 31. So it's not my favorite, but it's up there. 
And then I have to say, I, I, I love Christopher Lee as Dracula. He, obviously, he's got longevity. But what an amazing actor, both Dracula and other things he played. So that guy was just phenomenal. And then in modern times, you got to give credit to the, the Coppola movie. Um, Gary Oldman had a lot more behind him in, in, the, in the department of costumes and sets and so on. So he's got an advantage over Lee and Lugosi. But those are my big three um, when it comes to, if I had to narrow down the crowd, to, to Lugosi, Lee, and Gary Oldman for the, the top three and how they depicted um, Bram's monster. Christopher Lee was, was a, a, a devotee of the novel, if I remember correctly. He went so far, he did a version called Count Dracula, which was trying to get a little closer to the novel, and then he was in the television uh, documentary, I guess, called uh, In Search of Dracula, where he literally played Vlad Chepesh. Now, I didn't know that one, but I do know he, he's got a statement that is that is nobody ever filmed Dracula like Bram Stoker wrote it. And occasionally, I understand, he even refused to say lines that he thought were not up to what he thought Bram Stoker would have would have wanted in a movie. So I guess he had enough clout to sort of put his foot down to the director or the screenwriter from time to time. Oh, he did from from the very beginning. Beyond beyond the first movie, Horror of Dracula, he he literally would refuse to say lines if they didn't work. They, he went he went so far in at least one movie where he didn't speak because he just said, "No, I don't like your lines, so I just won't speak." And and that was it. Wow, good for him. He in yeah. his last Dracula movie. He made a point of quoting the book. He made a point of using lines from Bram Stoker's novel, uh, uh, at least to get some of them into his 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 Dracula series, if you will. Uh, yeah, that's so, great. So yeah. yeah, he was he was he he was definitely much more of a he he was also a devotee of 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 the genre itself. Uh, now now you mentioned about Hollywood changing it. Do you think that the, the vampire and, and Dracula, do you think they reflect our world? Do you think the changes, like you said about Hollywood needed a leading man, they couldn't very well have, have a rat-like figure. Uh, do you think uh, Dracula is sort of, one might say it's like, like Shakespeare, each time someone does, uh, John Gilgood said of Hamlet, he said you can't play it, you can only attempt it. So do, do you think there are always these attempts to, to make it part of our, our modern thought, do you think it's always, uh, like it's become a parable, if you will, that the vampire changes as the world changes? Well, I, I, that's, a, that's a great point, because we've always known from the beginning, if, if you really look closely at what Bram said, that the vampire is like this ultimate sort of predator, and, and he can shapeshift, and he can adapt, and he can, you know, go away and hide for a while, he can come back as a bat, as a rat, as mist. And, and as I think this through and I look at how different directors, different screenwriters have, have, have placed this character in different scenarios, make them look different, they're making them adapt to be horrifying to us. And sometimes horrifying is making them look just like us. Yeah. Making them look like the, the guy next door or the hot girl next door or, you know, wherever they may be, what horrifies us is sometimes something that you don't recognize as being a monster. You know, walking down the street in the tux and the metal and, the, and that sort of thing. That may be a little easy to recognize, but when you look at the very successful TV shows, Vampire Diaries, 
to it is it's very adaptable. The other one is, you know, I get asked the question, oh, what do you think the way they changed Franz Dracula? Well, if, if it was always exactly the same because they felt they had to stick with Franz Dracula, we might be a little bored yeah. with, you know, the, the next movie that comes out. Yet, we all hold our breath as we are right now waiting for the Moffat and Gaddis BBC Netflix production coming out this winter. Right. Like, what are they going to, what's it going to be like, you know? How, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? And, and it's not going to satisfy everybody. I'll tell you that right now. Not everyone, because this is such a universal trope that some people will love it and some people won't. And that, that's the beauty. We just keep moving on and, and inspiring different creative people and writers to yet adapt him another way to see where he fits in. He, he has been everyone from, from the, the aristocrat to, to the rock star. So, yes, it, it definitely he, – he, he is eternal because he walks through our, our present showing us who we are. He's, he's the eternal mirror. Uh, if, if you had your druthers, because this is, this is the good fight that you're doing now, if you had your druthers, what would you want to see happen in the near future, in, in the distant future? Uh, some sort of respect for, for your uncle, some sort of, of, of what would you want? What, 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 in a perfect world, what's your ultimate goal? I've got to, I mean, this, hopefully this will come off right. I, I respect the books. I mean, I've, I've co-authored two, Track of the Undead and recently Dracul, and also The Lost Journal. You also did a documentary. Also, you did a documentary, Stoker Meets uh, Dracula. Well, that, that would never actually happen. I'm, I'm, wor- I'm actually working on that now, and I think... Oh, okay. I, I, I think a biopic... Um, I, love the, I love the movie Hitchcock... Um, about Alfred Hitchcock while uh, Psycho was being filmed. I recently saw the movie Tolkien. Um, and to bring to a broader audience, Jay, what I'm saying is books are great and, and it'd be cool when they get turned into, if they get turned into movies. But I would love someone to embrace the concept of a biopic, much like Hitchcock or Tolkien, about Bram Stoker. Because deep inside, it moves beyond just the documentary. You and I both know documentaries do get, you know, they, they get good, good good coverage. They get picked up by somebody on the History Channel or in, a, in a, uh, a film festival somewhere. But I think a feature film biopic about Bram Stoker and what his life was like and leading into writing Dracula in some way. I, I've, I've kind of messed around with my concepts on that, but I've got to get someone to get traction. That would be the end game for me because I want to see people understand the magnificence of Bram Stoker as the person that created something that rocked our world, I think that would be very cool. I think you're very right, and I think your dream's going to come true. Uh, There was a movie called Gothic, which basically told the story of how Mary Shelley created her uh, fascinating creature, and there was even a play done recently called Mary's Little Monster, which basically did the same thing. So, So I have a feeling someone's going to turn around and say, now, now, what is this guy Bram Stoker like? And and so I think you're definitely going to get your wish. Uh, I, I hope so. Mr. Stoker, thank you so much. This has been a, a real honor for me, I have to tell you. I have been a devotee of this since since, since before I could shave. So so thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And, and I will definitely tell our listeners how they can find out more about, about uh, the novel, if they wish to go further, and about all your great work regarding it. 
Thank you, Shane. Have a, have a great Halloween season. Thank you. Same to you. Ciao. All right. Take care. Bye. Now. And so begins our new segment, In the Dark, in the Passion Pit, celebrating members of the macabre and independent filmmakers who enjoy such work. Well, this has been a lovely season so far, hasn't it? We just spoke to a descendant of the Booth family. Now we spoke to a descendant of Count Dracula's creator. Next time, we're going to speak to a high priest of the theater, Peter Felicia. Before we go, I want to leave you with a piece of music. This is the piece of music I first heard that started my love affair with horror movies. Until next time, I'm Jay Michaels, and this is Creature Features.